This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. Hello, aviators, and welcome to the Flight Time Series by Hangar Talk and Flight Training Magazine, where we bring you the exciting world of aviation. Each show, we will revisit a popular Hangar Talk interview for the flight training audience. I'm Jennifer Nahn, Senior Manager of Media Relations and Public Affairs at AOPA. This episode, we speak with John and Martha King. Chances are, if you've even taken one flight lesson, you know their names. John and Martha are aviation legends. As the faces of King Schools, they have been teaching people to fly for decades. The dynamic husband and wife duo is known for their quick wit, sarcastic sense of humor, and deep knowledge. AOPA senior content producer Ian Twombly caught up with them to discuss their beginnings, Martha's status as a role model, and much more. You can find more information at kingschools.com. Flight time is brought to you by AOPA. Go to AOPA.org for more information, and if you're not a member, make sure you push that join button while you're there. If you like the show, subscribe on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. All right, Ian, take it away. So we're here at Oshkosh. How many years have you guys been coming? Oh, my goodness. Uh, we started selling course books and uh, uh, question and answer books in the about 75? 75, 6, 7 yeah. in that era. So, and we started coming here. We had a booth selling the question and answer books then, so... I, I doubt if we've missed one since since 75. That's, what, 40 years? Yeah, wow. something on, on the order of 40 years. Yeah. yeah. And uh, taking me back a little bit even before that, how did you get started flying? And how did you meet and, and, and how did you decide to, to start a business out of it? Well, first of all, we started flying because when we sold a business and got just a little bit of money, and the very first thing I wanted to do was get an airplane. And Martha could see the handwriting on the wall, and she's not about to be someone who's going to be left behind in any way. I wasn't going to sit home while he was out at the airport having fun, is what he's trying to say. That's right, Right. yeah. Yeah. And and so consequently, we learned to fly. We got our check rides done within a day of each other. Right. Um, And Martha's always been only a little bit better pilot than I am. 
Um, she's it all depends on what kind of flying you're talking about. Uh, yeah. she's, she's ahead of the airplane. She knows what's about to happen next. And, uh, but John got hooked on it really young because his father had an airplane, hmm. and John used to fly with his father and then later on with a family friend. And uh, he got as far as solo in high school, hmm. but then decided that uh, he really ought to be saving his money in order to go to school. And uh, you were paying the outrageous sum of how much was well, it? For I think it was $8 an hour to wow. an airplane and instructor. Um, but but if, if you don't have we $8, that's a lot of money. We ought to be careful with that number. I think it dates you, John. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I think it probably does. So we got an airplane, got a little Cherokee 140, and and took off and just flew all over the place in that airplane. I mean, uh, just uh, the day after we got our certificates, uh, we're down to Florida and the Bahamas. And, oh, wow. And, uh, yeah. and then when we were headed home, and we had gotten our certificate just before Christmas, and we were headed back to Indiana, which is where from Florida. Uh, we lived in Indiana at the time. And the further north we got, the colder it got. And all of a sudden, there was this white stuff on the ground again. And we looked at each other, and John said, shall we do it? And I said, sure. And we just hung a left and headed for California. We never, we never <laughs> went back home. We just turned left and went to California. And I guess what, the, what an airplane did for us is it completely changed our lives. It changed our view of the world. It changed our view of the country and it our changed ability. changed our view of opportunity. Yes, mm. and the ability to go places and do things. And uh, ever since that moment, um, we've had an airplane almost continuously. When we had a financial reverse and had to join flying clubs instead of owning an airplane. That didn't last very long. And, and I, I think we've owns something on the order. It's, it's hard to know because we had some in business, some in personal, but something like 14 airplanes. But uh, it's, it's, it's more of a, it's what you couldn't call it a, a hobby. It was just a complete uh, change in our lifestyle. Uh, you could call it an addiction, probably. Yeah, yeah. probably more so, than, more so than a hobby. So we went, um, we went broke in our first business after about 10 years of struggle, and we said, wow, that hurt. Let's not do that anymore. Um, let's do something for the fun of it until a serious business comes along. So we started teaching ground schools for pilots, and the idea was to do that, have a good time, and eventually we'd find a serious business. And it's been, um, I think, 41 years now, and we still haven't found a serious business so, so we're still looking for something serious yeah, to but do. we're having fun we're having a good time and you know the people that you meet in aviation are so special and the the um, uh, places that you get to go because you're a pilot and they're a pilot and and you share so much you know so much about each other just by knowing that that the other person is a pilot um it's very special, immediate relationship. Hmm. So, Martha, you didn't uh, you didn't have a flying background then. You uh... well, my father was in the Air Force, okay. but he had I mean no clue, no no idea that uh, they'd have a woman flying. Yeah. And uh, no encouragement whatsoever. He did not fly civilian at all. Okay. And. Um, um, unfortunately, he died before we started uh, flying. So I don't really know what he would have thought about that. That, hmm. that would have been interesting to have known. You yeah. shared a lot of things like, uh, you know, river floating and, with him. Uh, I, I, I think he would have been pleased. It just, just wouldn't have ever occurred to him yeah. Right. That, yeah. that he would fly. Yeah. And now it's funny. Now, uh, I guess I hadn't thought about this, but 
you know, back even um, when you guys started the business and, and you said, you know, didn't want John to go to the airport and sort of leave you home. I mean, that's uh, really, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm sure you don't put a label on it, but it's like you're sort of a feminist back then. It's like, well, you're going to be equals and you guys are going to run this together. You're going to fly together and, and really you're going to do this as partners. Uh, well, actually, John's the feminist yeah. in our uh, yeah. marriage. Yeah, I'm the woman's liver. Yeah. Um, we made the decision when we're walking around the campus holding hands and trying to figure out what life was going to be like is that we were going to be equal equal partners in everything we did. So, um, and it's been that way and we've been, we're equal owners of the business and, and as we're, I said. We're equally on the video. We share mm -hmm. the flying, trading legs in the air plane if, and, uh, if we even give talks and, and, and share the microphone and um, getting 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 along with a redhead while you're giving a talk is difficult uh, uh, not as difficult sometimes as getting along in the airplane though well yeah. we fixed that when I learned to call you captain oh yeah, yeah so that's now, true. I did want to ask you about that because um, a lot of people of course uh, don't even work with their spouses you guys not only work together you fly together and so there's all kinds of dynamics and You've had to work out a routine, basically, to make that work for you. The, the routine is the same thing that we, we try to implement in the business, which is that you have to give each other a lot of respect, a lot of room. And in the flying, you have to work on the idea that because we're different personalities, we're going to have different approaches to tasks, and we're going to have different timing on when we do this or that or the other. And I may do something just about 30 seconds later than John would have done it, which is enough time if you're not careful, and vice versa on other things. If you're not careful, that's just enough time for the person who would have done it 30 seconds earlier to come out and start saying, well, uh, it's time for you to do this, time for you to do that. And it's very easy for the person who's actually flying to end up feeling like a voice-activated autopilot, hmm. which is not very rewarding. So, yeah. so one of the critical things is to give each other room and time and recognize that differences in style don't mean a difference in safety level. And I, I, we had a friend that we were complaining. We were both flight instructors, and we used to travel around uh, the country in a Cessna 340 and take turns flying, and there was a tendency for each of us who was in the right seat to, to be instructing the other. And uh, the, 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 Even though not invited to. Yeah, well, you're instructors. It's like you feel like you have to say something, right? And, uh, and the person who was trying to instruct was um, annoyed because they were ignored, and the person who was re re inadvertently receiving the instruction, instruction was annoyed because they hadn't uh, asked for it. They hadn't asked for any instruction. And, and so we were telling this to a friend, and he says, well, I can solve that problem for you. And I said, no, no, no. We're, we, we would drive home from the airport not talking to each other with steam coming out of our ears and he says i you know you can solve that with one word and i said okay okay what's the word and literally he said the word is captain and so when we're in the aircraft together and if, let's say i'm her co-pilot i will call her captain and our our airplane is fixed with headsets in every seat because it's be cruel and unusual punishment to <laughs> our passengers almost always are all pilots yeah, yeah. Not, not know what we're doing up yeah. there so so we, we use that and and we have gotten into crew resource management really we take great great pride in being a well-coordinated crew and we, we love flying well as a team now and our passengers sometimes after a trip will will talk to us and say 
boy, you sounded so formal up there with each other, almost like you didn't know each other and so on. And mm. But it's part of, uh, as I mentioned, in, in the airplane and in business, we try and treat each other as uh, equals working together, not as husband and wife in a family relationship, because um, it, it's the the equals giving respect to each other uh, with courtesy and uh, um, kindness, if you will, that is reassuring to passengers in the airplane and employees in the company. So we've gone from uh, battling each other in the airport to now being told when we go to flight safety and uh, that they that we do the best crew resource management of anybody they have. And, uh, oh, wow. And uh, so we really we really enjoy doing it, and, and it, it take great pride in doing it. It's a great well, deal of been, satisfaction. We've been flying airplanes together as the sole uh, pilot, co-pilot swapping legs, airplanes that require two pilots for um, 26 years now? Well, 30, isn't it? We've, we, uh, yeah, 30. 30. 30 years now. So, wow. so we just can't get our math together. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Well, I keep forgetting to update my clock as the years <laughs> yeah. tick on. Yeah. yeah, that was four years ago. Yeah. I look in the mirror and I go, what the hell happened here? You know. <laughs> so um, now you mentioned the two-pilot airplanes, but of course you've flown all the types. Um, you've one of the few... I guess maybe the only pair and certainly some of the only few people who are rated pretty much in everything you can do. And so why did you do it? categories and classes. Yeah. Now, just recently, the FAA started uh, issuing a powered lift to people who flew uh, the V-22 Osprey. Yeah. Uh, and and there's no civilian airplane that you can get powered lift in, but they, they get it in the military and they come back and they've been getting that on their certificates. We, we don't have that. So Well, um, every category and <laughs> class is civilian. Yeah, I yeah. guess there you, the there you go. There you go. So was that a goal, kind of starting out? Did you just one day say, hey, let's just learn everything. Let's just go have some fun. We're going to you know, it, expose ourselves to all that aviation has to it offer? It didn't start out at all as a goal. It started out because, first of all, we learned to fly, obviously, single engine, and then we needed a multi-engine for our travel. And we were just very enthusiastic about flying. Uh, we were teaching ground schools up in Alaska, where, of course, there's a lot of float planes. And we looked at, and people were inviting us to go with them in float planes. And we looked at that and said, and, you know, if we're going to do that on any kind of a regular basis, and we went to Alaska teaching for 10 years, hmm. uh, we really ought to, um, to get a float plane rating. And so we did. And, um, and then our uh, commercial float plane. Yeah, we, we just enjoy learning. We and particularly enjoy learning about flying. And we've probably had more opportunity than other people. And we just always took advantage of the opportunity. And so it became more of a case of, well, we ran out of stuff uh, than trying to re make a goal of getting everything. We just simply mm -hmm. used every opportunity. And we had lots of opportunity. And but we really liked learning. Yeah. Part of what happened is we were very, very fortunate in that we have a good friend who was a friend of the chief pilot for the Fujifilm uh, airship, the yes. Fujifilm blimp. Of course, the hardest one it, to get. It is. That, it is. that yeah. is the tough one because there's no flight school for yeah. flying blimps. It's on-the-job training. And at the time, the Fuji folks were looking for, they, they were doing a lot of camera flying for events like, for instance, the U.S. Tennis Open, 
which runs for like uh, 21 days, and they would be up on 12-hour days every day of those 21 days with an onboard camera. Hmm. And they had a standard crew of three, but you're going to wear three pilots out pretty fast doing that kind of it's flying. It's actually the hardest thing uh, that we fly. Of all right. the things we've flown, it's really? the hardest thing to fly. Huh. Um, and um, that's counterintuitive. It looks like just a big bag of helium floating in the sky, but it's very hard to fly. Things don't happen fast, but yeah. the problem is sometimes they don't happen. You know? <laughs> in, in a helicopter, for instance, if, if you if you want to go to the right, generally you can just almost think, I want to yeah. go right, and the helicopter will do it. That's right. And in the blimp, we used to have times where a passenger would come up and, and say to us, you know, are these controls hooked up backwards? Because <laughs> I see you've got the yoke all the way over to the right and the airship's turning left. Oh, wow. And we'd say, well, we have the yoke all over to the right because the airship is turning left. Yeah. It's yeah. A, uh, it, you ask it to do something, and sometimes it thinks about it a while, and usually says yes, but sometimes says no. There was a long, long delay before whatever. Right. Yeah. yeah, and in fact, I heard uh, from one guy who flew, he says, well, you're just not going to come out of this career with a clean record because at some point, it's just going to do what it wants to do, and you'll probably put it in the trees. That's and, true. Right. Yeah. That's ab yeah. absolutely. If, if, absolutely. If you want an accident-free record, don't fly a blimp. Yeah. <laughs> And it's yeah. the only aircraft that we've flown where you really do have potentially an emergency takeoff. That's actually a great segue to the next thing I want to talk about, which is uh, risk management. I mean, people have heard of judgment and aeronautical decision making, but you guys boil it down to this general concept of risk management, which, which now is really important with the Airman Certification Standards. So why, why are you so passionate? Why are you risk evangelists? Well, we got started and got our passion for it from when we were traveling around the country, uh, traveling to a circuit of cities, and we'd very often come to the same city every couple months, and sometimes we'd have someone come up to us and say, hey, John, Martha, did you hear about Bill? And we'd go, no. What about Bill? And they, well, he got killed in an aircraft accident. And we began to realize that, that this was happening far more than we wanted it to happen. And so... We had a student, I had a student in my class one time with about 50 people in the class, and I had a guy who was um, uh, both an Episcopalian priest and a, and a radiologist. He was a physician. He was a pillar in his community and, and had a lot of respect. And, but, but the problem from my standpoint is, is he wouldn't come back to class on time. I'd have 50 other people in the class, and, and he would want me to repeat the stuff he missed when he didn't come back on time. He would blurt out questions in the, in the middle of the class. And, and I, I became concerned that he wasn't following uh, the conventions of, of a classroom. And so when the FAA came to give the test, I said to... Uh, to them, you know, you, you're going to have to talk to Dr. I'll call him, I'll call him Dr. Williams. I think he's going to kill himself in an airplane. And the FAA inspector said, well, John, I can't just pick someone out of your class and give him a lecture because, because you tell me I need to. He'll call his congressman. And I said, well, if, if you don't, he's going to kill himself. He says, well, you talk to him. And I said, well, I'm just a traveling ground instructor. He's not going to listen to me. So neither one of us did. And back home, a couple weeks later, the phone rings. And the guy says, John, this is Del Randall's. Thought, and he was the FA inspector. He says, I thought you'd want to know uh, Dr. Williams is dead. Oh, and that wow. just hit me uh, like a thunderclap. I, I was just stunned by it. And I made the decision that never again was I going to see something that I thought 
that might be deadly to people and not do something about it. I was never going to let somebody put that guilt trip on me again. And, and, and as time went on, uh, we got into the video business, and I began to realize that what we said could make a difference. And I thought I had an opportunity, and then I began to realize I think I've got an obligation to do something. And at the same time, when we were teaching these students who were getting killed, uh, we were teaching them uh, to prepare for the knowledge test, and the questions on the knowledge test were tricky, they were trivial, they were obscure. The FAA just wanted to differentiate between people who say knew about ADF and people who really knew AD ADF, and so they wound up asking trickier and trickier questions. So we got into this syndrome that, that the aviation community would prepare people for tricky and obscure questions, and so the questions got even trickier and more obscure, trying to, trying to get people to miss questions. In the meantime, the, the FAA was not asking practical, uh, risk-oriented, operational questions that might make a difference in whether that uh, pilot lived or died. Mm -hmm. And that really got to us. That bothered us. Yeah, and, and so I, I kind of feel I'm a little bit uh, I'm, I'm odd man out on this. I, I think that things like uh, talking about uh, judgment and aeronautical decision-making and five hazardous attitudes, all of those are a little bit insulting to the person you're talking to. You, the vocabulary is not really acceptable to the listener. You have, you have a 40-year-old uh, learning pilot and a 20-year-old instructor, and, today the, and, the, and the instructor says, today I'm going to teach you how to make a decision. And the 40-year-old is very likely to say, I don't think so, kid. Yeah. Uh, or, or today I'm going to teach you judgment. And once again, the response is going to be, I don't, I don't think you're going to teach me judgment. But if you tell someone there are risks associated with flying an aircraft that are different than many other risks that you face in your life, you need to learn about those specific risks, how to identify them, and develop a habit of mitigating those risks. And if you start teaching a, a learning pilot from their very first flight lesson the habit of identifying and mitigating risks, you're likely to come up with a, with a pilot who has learned to fly who does this habitually, doesn't even, isn't even aware that they're thinking about risk and managing risk the whole time. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, you know, one problem with judgment is you can't just say to somebody, well, you need good judgment you need better judgment because they don't know what the risks are in the first place right and there's and it doesn't give them any guidance on yeah. how to have yeah. it better and so in our view the risk management approach is teaching a process a way of thinking about uh, the flights that they're going to do and that's why we like using the the pave checklist uh, looking at risk in terms of the categories of the pilot, the aircraft, the environment, and external pressures operating on the person uh, when they're planning a flight. And then once they get in the air, um, uh, using the uh, checklist care or, or sea care, uh, uh, the first C is think about the changes that are happening during the flight. Uh, the second C is what are the consequences of those changes. The A is what alternatives do, they ha do I have at this point. The R is deal with reality always make sure that when reality changes, I'm changing what I need to do. And again, thinking about the external pressures. It's a, a process and a way of thinking uh, that is a tool that can be taught. Just like uh, if someone was learning to scuba dive or to mountain climb, rock climb, there are uh, habits that you teach them 
that they learn in order to make it uh, enjoyable and less risky. Yeah. So I, I think part of what we're hoping for is a, is a pilot who is situationally aware that things don't catch them by surprise, and particularly the risks associated with flying. Yeah, and it's I, I think that's something that previously, if you don't have that risk sort of approach to it, it's like that's what you learn at the hangar, right? It's a, I think right. it was 500 hours before I talked to somebody who said I would never fly single engine at night. And the thought had never even occurred to me not to fly single engine at night, you know, but these guys, uh, you know, the ones who have that experience, they right. learn the risk over time. So. Right. Well, the thing is that experience is a very tough teacher because experience gives the test first and the lesson only comes afterwards, provided you survive the test to get the lesson. And yeah. unfortunately, not everybody does. Yeah. So um, that, but that's the goal of the Airman Certification Standards, the ACS, it, to integrate risk management into the whole training process and the evaluation process, not in terms of uh, this is the correct answer and that's a wrong answer, but do you have a thought process and a procedure where you're thinking about these issues and coming up with answers and ideas and alternatives, even if they're different from what I would have come up with, mm -hmm. you're thinking about them. Yeah, that's right. And so um, the new Airman Certification Standards, of course, you guys are, um, you were involved um, in the process, but uh, but part of that is that, uh, of course, you, you feel passionately about it just individually and as flight instructors, but there's, um, you know, you're in the business of teaching pilots. You have King Schools, and so you, you you uh, you have that that interest there that uh, that passion about it. Well, the the thing is that I think aviation attracts a spectacular group of people, and very often you'll find someone did something that appears to be stupid, but you get back into who that person is, and they're they're wonderful contributors to every community they're involved in. They're just a wonderful group of people, and I think the real tragedy is is that if when when we fail as a community to help this pilot understand the risks that they're taking, um, we've we've deprived that community uh, of a contributor to the. Community. We've deprived them of a family member uh, and someone that uh, uh, a spectacular human being. So I, th I think we have a real obligation to do well by the, our other members of the aviation community. Yeah. So, uh, John, Martha, I know I need to get you to your next appointment, but really quickly, uh, give us a, a, an update on on the business on King Schools and uh, tell folks where they can find you. Okay. Well, we're we've just finished doing a. Uh, a complete redo of the private pilot and instrument rating practical tests courses uh, in HD and uh, oriented on the new ACS standard so that uh, there's, we've always incorporated some risk management into it, but now it's much more structured. And so that's incorporated in there and gives people a, a model of how examiners are going to be evaluating and instructors might think about teaching a about risk management for that. We've also are updating all of our courses to HD and the private course is uh, has about a lesson or two to go and uh, it'll be done and then we're moving on to the instrument. And they can reach us at 800-854-1001 um, or kingschools.com. Great, okay, thank you both for the time. And enjoy your what is it now? What do we decide? 30-something Oshkosh? Uh, um, I think it's about 30. At least 30. Wow. Thank you very much, Ian. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>